Good morning. Please remain standing. I see you all sneaking down. We will read together. Actually, I will read to you. Please listen as I read to you the words of the 85th Psalm. Hear these words well. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good. Our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Twelve years ago this month, one of the best friends that I've ever had in my life was born. His name was Rufus. And Rufus had this beautiful brown fur coat that when the sunlight shone on it, it was just spectacular. And Rufus had these deep and steady brown eyes. And nobody would accuse Rufus of being the smartest guy around. But what he lacked in intelligence, he definitely made up for in empathy. Rufus came into my life when I was in a particularly dark place. And it seemed that every single time that I was at my lowest, Rufus knew it. He would come over and he'd lay his head on my lap and he'd look at me and I would see that I wasn't alone. And of course, Rufus did share in all of the joys of my life as well. He was there when I graduated from college. He was there when I got my first real job. When I left that job and came to work for the church, he was there when I met my wife. And he was there when my son was born. Everything that I celebrated, Rufus celebrated with me. He really was my best friend. But unfortunately, a couple of months ago, Rufus passed away. My friend Renee Kazar, who many of you probably know, she is also a dog person, and she got me a gift that she thought might bring me some comfort and maybe a little bit of joy. And it's this book of poetry. It's called God Got a Dog. <clears throat> it's written by a woman named Cynthia Ryland, and I read this poem, or this book of poetry, straight through when I opened it. It is absolutely a brilliant book, and if you want to check it out after the service, please do. I'll leave it up here. I want to share with you a few of the poems from this book. The first one I'll share is called God Went to Beauty School. God went to beauty school. He went there to learn how to give a good perm and ended up just crazy about nails. So he opened up his own shop. Nails by Jim, he called it. He was sure people would think that he was being disrespectful and using his own name in vain, 
if he called it nails by God. Nobody would tip. He got into nails, of course, because he had always loved hands. Hands were some of the best thing he'd ever done. And this way, he could just hold one in his, admire those delicate bones just above the knuckles, delicate as birds' wings. And after he'd done that a while, he could paint all the nails any color he wanted. Then say beautiful and mean it. next poem is called God Made Spaghetti. God made spaghetti. She didn't have a ceiling, so she tried to make it stick to Jupiter. But that just vaporized the noodle. So God decided to have faith that it was cooked al dente. She filled up a big bowl and got herself a piece of sourdough and a copy of the New Yorker, and God had supper. She would actually have liked somebody to talk to. She didn't like eating alone, but most people think God lives on air. Apparently, they've not noticed all the food she's created. So nobody ever invites her over, unless it's communion, and that's always such a letdown. God's gotten used to one plate at the table. She lights a candle anyway. And one more. I can't can't not... Uh, read to you the eponymous poem of this book, God Got a Dog. She never meant to. She liked dogs. She liked them ever since she was a kid, but she didn't think she had time for a dog now. She was always working, and God and dogs needed so much attention. God didn't know if she could take being needed by one more thing. But she saw this dog out by the tracks, and it was hungry and cold and lonely, and God realized she'd made that dog somehow. Somehow she was responsible, that she knew logically that she had only set the world on its course. But she saw this dog and she felt bad, so she took it home and she named it Ernie. And now God has somebody keeping her feet warm at night. Now, as I said, these play, or I, I don't think I did say it actually, these poems are playful. They're whimsical and they're fun. And I'm not reading them to you this morning so that we might build a systematic theology based off of them. But what I hope that we do find is that in this poetry we find glimpses of universal truths that we might not find in a rational, linear, logical argument. The Psalms where we're spending this time of Advent are poetic prayers. They give us glimpses into God's character the way he moves and acts, what he finds pleasure in, and glimpses into how we relate to this God. Consider these lines from the Psalms. The decrees of the Lord are more precious than gold, than so much pure gold. God makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How sweet are your words to my taste, O Lord. Sweeter than honey on my lips. The Psalms give us imagery. They give us sensation that we won't find when we look in the genealogical lists of the Chronicles 
or the historical narratives of the kings or even in the theological letters of Paul. So as we move forward this morning with our psalm, please, I ask, let us keep our heads and even more our hearts in this place of metaphor and allegory, of story and poem. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 85, was likely written after the people of Israel started to be allowed to return to their homes after the Babylonian exile. This psalm has a certain movement to it that many of the psalms have. It begins with praise. From the praise, it moves to a lament. From the lament, it moves forward into a petition. And from that petition, it ends and it resolves in a place of trust. Our lectionary, or what we read this morning, only included the first portion, the praise, and the last portion. The place of trust. So I'll fill in a couple of the blanks. When the people return home to the promised land, they find that they're free, but what they find when they reach Jerusalem is that it's still in ruins. Much of the land of Judah is still destroyed. The city wall has fallen and offers no protection. Their homes are destroyed. Resources are hard to come by. And finally, the temple, the single symbol of the presence of God with the people, is no more. And so when they move home in this freedom, they're celebrating one thing, but they feel like there has to be something more. The psalm puts forward this longing for something more like this. Restore us again, God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. These people have been saved. But they realize that their need for salvation continues. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. And these are the lines that bring the psalmist to the place of trust. Let's listen again to this last portion of the psalm. This time, let us listen with our ears open to the imagery and to the poetry within it. I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him and his glory might dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from the heavens. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. For those singing this psalm, or praying this prayer, they trust that God will respond. And the response in this psalm It's a promise of peace. The writer declares that surely God's salvation is at hand. This peace and this salvation in this psalm looks like God's glory dwelling in our land. This glory will permeate all that we know, all that we see and hear and taste and touch and smell. Loving kindness and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace 
kiss each other. One commentator says of this line that it is the most beautiful image in all of the scripture. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from the heavens. Hebrew poetry is a little bit different than the poetry that we learn as we're growing up in our Western school systems. Rather than trying to rhyme a few different lines or words at the end of lines, what the Hebrew poet tries to do is take a concept and say it in as many different ways as they can. So they almost mirror a concept against itself over and over. And as we take a look at the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, what we find is that the Hebrew poems, poets will often take a word or a phrase from somewhere else in the scripture to draw your mind to that concept and then mirror that concept against the things that he's talking about. Psalm 85 is no exception. The language of this psalm, words that like heaven and earth draw the mind of the listener to the creation poem of Genesis 1. And in the poem of Genesis 1, there are a lot of mirrors. The days of creation mirror each other as space is created and then filled. The heavens are made, and then the heavens are filled with the sun, the moon, and the stars. The seas are created, and then the seas are filled filled with sea creatures. The land emerges, and then the land is filled with plants and animals. The heavens are made and filled with birds. And finally, towards the end of this poem, God makes something that even mirrors himself. He creates something in his own likeness and in his own image. He makes us. And it's in this mirroring that humanity and even all of creation finds its calling. Remember that our psalm says that salvation and peace are found when God's glory permeates creation. In this poem, the reflection of God's glory is what creation, and especially humanity, was made for. Now, glory is a strange word for me. People talk about glory in battle and glory in the sports arena, and I've always felt like that kind of glory just is a little bit empty when we're talking about God. God has no counterpart, so if he's overcoming some lesser creature, it doesn't seem that there's much glory to be, gain- to be gained. So I've always kind of wondered, what is God's glory? And I found the answer in this psalm. Loving kindness and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The active incarnation of these four words give us a picture of the glory of God. Charles Wood, who was a professor at Perkins School of Theology, described it like this. The peace that the Lord will speak, or the salvation that is at hand, is nothing less than the glory of God dwelling with the people in the land. What this means is that the land and people together will be permeated by the divine character. They will be animated by those features of God's own manifest reality that were so central. Steadfast love, 
faithfulness, righteousness, peace. All dynamically interrelating or cohering in a way that brings to mind the concept of the divine perichoresis. The lively mutual indwelling of the members of the Trinity. Earth and sky and all in between will be caught up into and enlivened by these divine perfections. So the presence of God is reflected by that which God has created. The promise of peace and salvation is found in the reflection of God's loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. <clears throat> the reflection of these divine perfections in that which he's made. One of the reasons that I read the Cynthia Ryland poems to you this morning is because they blur the lines between the divine and humanity in such a brilliant way. Between the creature and that which has been that which has been created and the creator. In these poems humanity reflects God and God reflects the wonder of humanity back. Creation shines within the divine with the divine within us and God reflects the essence of our identity back to us. Here's a few ways to picture that. The year is 1950. A woman is on the precipice of a major decision. She's now 40 years old. She's lived a full life. Born in the Republic of Macedonia at 18, she decided to leave home and join the Sisters of Loreto in Ireland. She learns English and chooses to devote her life to the service of God. For the last 2 years though, she's been on a sabbatical, serving the poorest of the poor in India. And now she has to make a decision. This new experience in India has awoken in her a new calling, but she has to decide whether or not to return to the convent that she knew so well, to the comforts that she knows there, or whether to stay in India impoverished. She decides to stay and she founds what is called now the Missionaries of Charity. For 47 more years, she cares for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society. And she does this until her death at the age of 87. We can see the glory of God shining through reflecting from Mother Teresa. Peace and salvation were found in her presence. Or imagine this. Imagine a land that without the blessing of modern refrigeration would be near unbearable for much of the year. This isn't a land of forest and breeze but of heat and humidity. There is certainly beauty to this land. There's wildlife and springs and rolling hills, but this land sees the thermometer spike over 100 regularly. Sometimes the heat is so oppressive that even children hesitate to leave the comfort of their homes. And of course this has already been brought to mind but now imagine that land blanketed in snow. 
Imagine those children bursting forth for their homes with such looks of joy on their face with their parents right behind them with their cameras and their smartphones. The glory of God shines through that land. Through that snow, through those children and their proud parents, and even through those oppressive summers. And as Trey said, through each and every sunset and sunrising. Peace and salvation can be found in that land. Or listen to this story. The day that my son was born was, of course, full of wonder. I'm absolutely amazed by everything that went on in the nine months that led up to it, and especially on that day. But there was this one particular moment of that day that I will never forget no matter how much memory blurs the rest of it. It is pretty decently intimate, so I'll share the, or save the details for myself. But what I can tell you of that particular moment is that I saw in the face of my bride the glory of God. God creates life, and so does Kylie. Peace and salvation were found in that room with us that day. Or as we sit here, it would be pretty convenient to look across the aisle. I know it can be a little bit awkward, but I encourage you to look at somebody across from you. Look at somebody in the eye. You're seeing something that has been created by God. You're seeing something that reflects the glory. Something where righteousness and peace kiss each other. Where faithfulness and steadfast love meet. For the writer of this psalm, God's presence can be found in a lot of places. It can be found in a desert landscape with dots of succulents lining the floor. It can be found in the bursting forth of a sprig of wheat or the bread that the wheat will become. The presence is found in the eyes of a puppy named Rufus. This presence is found in the eyes of the people that you love the most and found in the faces of the strangers around you. This creation all around us is permeated by the presence and glory of God. It reflects back that loving kindness, faithfulness, and righteousness, and peace that it's given. Where you find something that has been created, there you also find something of the Creator. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us life, who sustains us and brings us to this very moment. We ask you, Father, to awaken us to your presence, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to everything that we sense and see, that we might actually see you in it. Help us to see that when we're looking for peace and salvation, we might find it in an unexpected place near us. 
We've received this promise of peace. We trust that salvation is at hand. And we ask that you would just make us aware. We bless you, Father, for who you are and who you've made us to be. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.